This is The Think Tank with Dr. Michael Neal, talking about the major political, economic, and social issues of the week. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. Well, we're going to talk today about a public health crisis. Adverse childhood experiences uh, have become a crisis. Uh, Jennifer Tunning is here. She is a director of clinical services for Candelin, which specializes in behavioral and mental health services. Uh, a little later in the show, Ia Afa will join us. Uh, she works for Arizona ACEs, which is Adverse Childhood Experiences, an acronym for that, which has obtained a $2 million grant from the Department of Health Services to deal with teacher and student stress and trauma. And later on, Laura Wiggins, who's an elementary and middle school teacher in the Apache Junction School District, who mentors new discussions, will add to the discussion. She will probably be in the second half of the show. Uh, First of all, I want to start with you, Jennifer. What are we talking about here? What What are these adverse childhood experiences and how do they impact the system? Yeah, so a lot of this work stems from the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, which is where the ACEs acronym comes from. And people who have experienced what originally were these 10 uh, childhood experiences that were isolated, things that would be chronic, unpredictable, and cause toxic stress to a child, they affect your physical and mental health functioning throughout the course of your life, as well as they affect the way that you operate within your community and your family. Okay, I'm drawing a blank as to what kinds of things those are. Could you can you said there's ten things. Give me a, give me a handful of them that are typical. Yeah, a lot of them are going to be focused on abuse and neglect. So whether it was physical, mental, emotional, sexual, or other things that would happen between a parent and child relationship or parent and caregiver relationship, like a parent going to prison, a divorce, witnessing domestic violence, or a parent with substance use disorder. Now. I wonder, are these kinds, are these are things becoming more prevalent or are we just getting better at noticing and measuring it? It's one of those yes and uh, mm-hmm. situations. We both know more now than we ever have before and are beginning to have this conversation as well as we see more communities experiencing more disproportionate levels of poverty. Uh, a lot of these ACEs come from communities and experiences where parents or other caregivers don't have the tools to give their children that healthy upbringing. And as we see shifts in communities with their economic accessibility and mobility, we see an increase in these experiences happening to children. And talk about the consequences, if you would. Yeah. So there's a number of things that we know come from the ACE study. And the ACE study actually originated as a way to try and understand the origins of you know what was labeled obesity and was done with a majority white, majority educated population. And even when controlling for some of those factors, if you had these adverse childhood experiences, you would still have some of those disproportionate health outcomes. So it can be things like personality disorders, uh, changes to the way your body responds to opiates, increased risk of suicide, mm-hmm. um, as well as some more physical health conditions, obesity, autoimmune disorders, um, and a number of different uh, more chronic health conditions like blood pressure and cholesterol. These sound like things that affect everybody, but if it follows the pattern of many other things, I'm guessing it probably hits minority 
communities disproportionately? Is that both of those fair statements? Yeah. So what we do know is that most people are affected. Um, Arizona actually has one of the highest number of children who have two or more ACEs in the entire country. So regardless of the community that these children belong to, we know that this is a widespread issue throughout both our state and the nation. Um, But we do see higher clusters, again, in communities where parents don't have quite the resources to be able to provide kind of that stable parenting relationship. Okay, I can understand why many of these things are prevalent in a lot of places. All right, you made an interesting statement there. Uh, We have a lot more of that in Arizona than nationwide. Why? Part of it seems to be, again, uh, some of our economic disparities that we have here, as well as we have a large uh, proportion of different communities that don't have access to consistent resources. So whether that be accessible education, child care, we have higher rates of incarceration than other parts of the country. We have more food insecurity than other parts of the country. Why would we have more food insecurity? A lot of it has to do with the amount of food deserts or food swamps we have in uh, disadvantaged communities. And explain what a food desert is, if you would. Yeah. So a food desert is the definition from the USDA where a person doesn't have access to healthy food, um, typically within a way that they could access it from either walking or public transportation. Um, We know that these food deserts don't happen by accident. So a lot of people also refer to it as food apartheid because it's systematic separation of historically black and brown or segregated communities from access to food. Basically means there's not accessible either transit or walking distance to a regular supermarket. You got it. Right. That you you probably have fast food places. Yes, and that gets you the food not, not, not known for good food. Correct. Um, okay. So um, tell, tell us a little bit about uh, uh, what is what – is, well, you mentioned the study. Okay. Mm-hmm. Where was the study done and by whom? Yeah, so it was done as a um, study between Kaiser Permanente and the CDC um, in California. Mm-hmm. So this was done a number of years ago, again, out of a small obesity clinic, um, and then turned into one of the most important public health advents since the invention of hand washing. So uh, has this has this study been replicated, for example, in Arizona, or is this are we just extrapolating from California data? Yeah, great question. Um, So another yes and. Um, We do collect some of our own data uh, here as well as the rest of the country does not have universal screening at scale. Um, There have also been some different variations of the study. For example, in Philadelphia, they've also done the urban ACEs study, Mm -hmm. which adds some additional questions that not only affect the child's more personal or familial environment, but also their urban environment. Are they experiencing gang violence? Are they watching shootings happen in their Mm -hmm. neighborhood? Are there other things in their environment? Is this overwhelming in an urban issue, or are we finding some of this in the uh, more extreme rural areas as well? I'm thinking of the the remote parts of the reservations, things like that. Absolutely. Um, Again, when we don't have those access and support to those things that support caregivers, you know, social determinants of health, Mm -hmm. um, we do see higher rates of ACEs in different indigenous communities as well as rural areas in our state as well as throughout the country. 
And, and I think it's also really important to add that when we start to talk about um, black, indigenous, people of color communities, we also have the additional component of historical trauma. And what we know um, is that trauma can be passed from one generation to the next on the epigenome of the DNA. So we're not saying that the actual genetic information changes, but the expression of that genetic information changes. And that is then in the foundation um, when a child is born. So when you start with the historical trauma issue in the foundation, in the genetic material, and then move to what's happening environmentally, in people of color, we're already starting with some level of adversity, which will be cumulative and perhaps cause complex trauma when they get to the stage of engaging um, in actual adverse childhood experiences. Explain to me, if you would, uh, and I, I missed the fr- intergenerational trauma. Trauma, okay. How and, and you say it's not genetic, but it but it, it sounds like you're saying if there's a genetic disposition, this is going to be a, a multiplying kind of right. So we're we're not saying that the genetic information changes, but our DNA accommodates the environment that we're in. So if we're in a hostile environment, the expression of our DNA is going to change to accommodate that environment. Could could you flesh that out with an example? Yeah. So one of the examples um, that you can think of is if you think of a piece of music, you know, even as simple as Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, even if you've never read music before, you could do that quickly. You could do that slowly. You could do that loudly. You could do it soft way. You could do certain parts over and over again. The actual piece of music, the actual notes and lyrics to Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star don't change. But the way that it is played, the way that it is expressed can change. So those epigenetic markers are like those different notations in music that tell you how loud, how soft, how fast, how slow. And it tells your genes to do the same thing. You know, if I have been through historical trauma or a parent has, um, where maybe there was domestic violence and when, you know, something happens, we hit people. When Mm -hmm. something happens to me, that gene expression might say, this is the next best thing to do to keep me safe because it has kept my ancestors safe over time. Would it be fair to say that an example of the intergenerational trauma would be, that you know, the finding very often we look at people who've abused kids and very high proportion of them were themselves abused? Is that an example? Yes. So we'll be back uh, with... uh, yeah, Afo, in a moment, she was the second voice who chimed in here just a minute ago. We're going to talk to her specifically when we return in just a moment. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. We are back discussing adverse childhood experiences. Uh, our second guest is... Uh, Ia Afo, and she works for Arizona ACEs, which is an acronym for Adverse Childhood Experiences. And you have obtained, uh, you or your organization has obtained a $2 million grant from the Arizona Department of Health Services to deal with teacher and student stress uh, and trauma. I wonder if you could tell us how that came about. 
Well, uh, I work for the Arizona um, Adverse Childhood Experiences Consortium. This is a private nonprofit? This is a private nonprofit. We started as a uh, ground ground roots organization, grassroots organization, and we've just grown. Um, We're now a 501c3. And Which means nonprofit. Nonprofit. To, to yes. translate that into English, Sorry. folks, that no. means if you non-profit. give them money, you get a tax deduction for there the. It is. That's exactly <laughs> what it means. Yes. But that's getting a little technical. Yes. So we wanted to um, have the opportunity to provide education and support our teachers in the classroom. What we know for a fact is at least 60% of the population has gone through some experience, some level of adversity in their childhood. So it is not an issue that is just, uh, you know, minority or um, black, indigenous, people of color issue. 60% of the population has gone through some type of childhood adversity. We compound that with the way society continues to change, becoming more and more capitalist. Um, We have fewer caregivers taking care of our children. And then, of course, we have the COVID-19 pandemic. So stress is cumulative. Trauma is cumulative. So if we start and we have a foundation with adversity in childhood and then we move to situations where We don't have um, responsive parenting, maybe because our parents are very busy and our parents are out working. And then we come, you know, we add on to that the stress of COVID-19 and what that has done to the entire population. We have an exacerbation of stress. We have, you know, higher levels of stress and stress hormones in our system. And what we start to see is increased difficult behaviors in the schools, right? So we talk often about the students and what the behaviors are. We try to focus on the behaviors and either we get very punitive and so then we want to start punishing the students when they have poor behavior or um, people really try to be on the other spectrum as well and say, okay, well, we're going to go out and reward good behavior. And the more we reward good behavior, the behaviors are going to change. But that's not the case. When a child is under stress, the child's behavior is going to be in alignment with what their neurobiology is doing, right? We've all heard of the fight or flight response. We're, We're familiar with that. So if a child started with some level of adversity, now, for instance, has gone through the pandemic where they've been isolated, where they've been in fear, where things have changed, where their routine has been broken, they move into fight-or-flight response because they feel unsafe. And act out in ways that are considered socially unacceptable. Correct. And and if you only deal with the symptoms of that, you're not going to fix anything. That's right. So So what we're really trying to do is not just put the onus on teachers because teachers are overwhelmed enough. So we're not adding this like another thing that the teacher needs to do, another thing the teacher needs to be responsible for, but teaching the teachers how to interact with children that are under a tremendous amount of stress so that they get the optimal behaviors in the classroom so that they can go ahead 
and teach, and it makes their job easier. Well, you say you don't want to lay another thing on the teachers, but, yes. you know, I, I listen to what you've described here. Yes. And I say, who else is there? <laughs> you know, I, I mean, you know, when I went through, I mean— there's guidance counselors. There's not that many. Usually they only when somebody, you know, you know, I remember that being equated with discipline, you know. Yes, but yeah. it, it's not. It's the information helps you in every aspect of mm. your life. It helps you manage yourself. It mm. helps you manage your relationship with your children. So it's not an added thing that um, the teacher is doing to perform just their job. It's mm. an added thing that helps the teacher self-regulate, learn mm. to regulate themselves and their fight or flight response, mm -hmm. which impacts every aspect of their life. So it's not just another, oh, we need to do another training. Yeah. We need to do another thing. This is life changing. It's transformational. I, I certainly can see that. a kid is acting out. Yes. And the first instinct of most human beings would be to do something to stifle that. That's right. Which may not help. It's not going you know, to help because if the child feels unsafe, the way that we change the behavior mm -hmm. is to create a safe environment. Mm -hmm. And as soon as the child feels safe, the body is going to come out of that fight or flight response and start to metabolize some of those stress hormones that are in the system. And then the child calms down and has behavior that's in alignment with their new neurobiology, which says we're safe. We're okay. We don't need all those stress hormones in and, our system. And the teacher's job just got a little bit easier. And the teacher's Because they don't have to deal with some, some extraneous thing that's, that's right. not in the curriculum. That's right. That's right. And the teachers can then love teaching again. It's difficult to teach. Which in we'll climate. talk about uh, in our next segment. Yes. There's a lot of evidence of uh, teachers, abnormally high percentages of teachers who are questioning whether they want to stay in the profession. In the next segment, uh, Laura Wiggins will join us. She's a practicing teacher in the Apache Junction District, and we'll have her join this discussion when we return in just a moment in the Think Tank. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. We've been talking about uh, what is under the acronym of Adverse Childhood Experiences. That's a, that's a mouthful. It refers to stressors, really, things that are going on in the environment, which is some suggestion, many of which are increasing. And uh, these impact our classrooms, but the discussion thus far has been a little bit theoretical a little bit removed from the classroom. We're, we're going to attempt to bridge that. Uh, Laura Wiggins is with us. She teaches in elementary and middle school in Apache Junction and also trains uh, new teachers. Uh, welcome to the show, Laura. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, tell us how you've, you've listened to this. Tell us uh, the ways in which what you've heard up to this point do or do not ring true to your own experience. Absolutely. So uh, what I've heard so far is that we know that adverse childhood experiences definitely impacts the students that we're teaching in our classrooms. And I've heard um, and I can attest that more than ever, teachers are seeing this in their students' behavior, their mental health, their overall well-being, which greatly impacts how they're performing academically and socially within the classroom. Well, one of the things I noted 
There was a, a, a recent article suggesting or pointing out that more than 20,000 Arizona teachers, that's one in three, could retire now if they wanted to. Okay, that's a demographic fact. But here's the one that got me. When I see a figure like this cited, I, I'm more interested in how the trends have gone. Because there's all, you know, if you say what percentage are thinking of leaving the profession, that's always something. And the question to me is, is it up or down? And that one of the more telling thing was there's a national education survey released in February found 55 percent of educators are thinking of leaving the profession earlier than planned. Well, that sounds high, but, uh, you know, maybe that's always been a high number. Well, last August, that number was 37 percent. For that number to go from 37 percent to 55 percent. Over a period of less than six months, I find to be staggering. Is that is that consistent with what you, you know, your discussions in the lunchroom with other teachers and just socializing? Is that are you, are you have things gotten to that crisis level where people are thinking of leaving? Absolutely, I I almost feel like it's higher than fifty percent. More than ever, I feel that teachers support staff, administrators are tired and burnt out and just really, really questioning whether they want to stay in education. Um, and I've been in education for 24 years now. And it, it this year, more than ever, I, I've seen a definite shift. Well, I, I think of things like, uh, and you might comment on this, a proposal that, well, uh, the legislature is concerned with uh, what you're teaching in the classroom, and so you have to post the syllabus online in some detail. Uh, that, that just smacks to me of we don't trust the people in the classroom. There's always been uh, expectations and there's been a lot of talk in the past about high stakes testing and things like that. But from my experience, the the pandemic has really changed the way that students show up each and every day in the classrooms and teachers are not getting the training that they need or deserve in regards to these adverse childhood experiences. What is happening when a student is dysregulated and in fight, flight, or freeze, and how to respond to that student when they're in this state. And so teachers are really struggling to be able to support the students they have, and they're also struggling with their own dysregulation. And, and managing it is just really causing teachers to feel burnt out and unsupported. Well, let me ask you, yeah, you raised a question. That sounds to me like that's your area. Are you offering help? What, 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 are, what are you potentially going to do for people like Laura? Yes. So that's what our program is about. Our, our program is about equipping teachers with the tools that they need to learn to regulate themselves. And when you're able to regulate yourself and be regulated, you can help the child co-regulate and you can have a safe classroom environment. So it's really about supporting the teachers so the teachers can do their job, which then impacts our children. 
How, how does this come about? Is this training in the in-service days that teachers have several per year? How, what's the mechanism for doing this? So the uh, school site or district will sign up for the training. They get to decide um, how they want to do the training. They get to decide whether they want um, four hours, eight hours, or 12 hours of training. They can have actual compensation for each teacher, each staff member that participates up to 25 people per site. Oh, so they get so they get some money to hire substitutes basically is what it sounds to cover the ground or, or to or, to compensate the teacher for actually taking that training. Oh, so would this be done outside of normal classroom? Yes. Hours? So that's additional Okay, teacher you this is outside of their normal hours and they get paid for it. Correct. Gotcha. Correct. And it can be part of their in-service or however the school wants to do it. We have the flexibility to do it however it is that they want to do it. Well, I assume the schools generally would prefer not to pull teachers out of the classroom. Right. So, so yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, four hours, is that enough? For school, the, four, like the four-hour training yeah. is for schools that have already had a lot of training in adverse childhood experiences. Mm-hmm. Most commonly, they will have the 12-hour training within the first year. And in the second year of our program, if they want to come back again, we have more hours available for them at that time. Can you give us a feel for what that, what that instruction looks like? Sure. So it's really about, first of all, understanding adverse childhood experiences, right? Understanding what that means, and how we become trauma-sensitive. How do we interact and create a safe environment so that a child doesn't have to exist in that fight-or-flight space? It's teaching about, and I hate to use the word self-care because it's so overused and it's so annoying for me, but, you know, the idea of how do I take care of myself so that I'm not always in fight or flight response. And then we talk about things like um, historical trauma, intergenerational trauma, how that impacts the child. There's um, a lot of talk about the neurology because what we have to understand, and this is the beautiful part of all of it, right? Because a lot of us want to shy away from social emotional learning. And, you know, this is kind of a trigger for people. What we're talking about is neurology. This is neurological response to stress. Understanding that when a child feels unsafe, they move into fight, flight, or freeze. And there's a physiological response. And there's a physiological response, and we shut off. In other words, it's not feely touchy. This is measurable. This is right. It's not touchy-feely. It's measurable. And what happens is when we're in fight, flight, or freeze, we're in the most primitive part of the brain. We're utilizing the most primitive part of the brain, the brainstem. When we are utilizing the brainstem, the brainstem's job is just to keep the person alive, mm-hmm. right? It shuts off the higher functioning parts of the brain, like the cortex. We need the cortex to learn information, to have good decision-making, to be self-reflective, um, to, uh, to have executive function, know how to order things. Um, all of the higher functioning gets turned off 
when we are in fight, flight, or freeze. In other words, you're not going to do classroom teaching when that's engaged. Right. There's not going to be this, the student mm-hmm. is not going to be able to learn. And I mm-hmm. think that speaks to what's happening with our children's grades and um, test scores at this time. Laura, want to tell us how this relates to your own experiences? Absolutely. When I went to school to become an educator, I was taught how to write lesson plans and how to deliver instruction. And no one taught me how to uh, regulate a student when they're in fight, flight, or freeze. Um, only through learning more about adverse childhood experiences and, and through my own experiences have I learned more about dysregulation and, and becoming more aware of how that impacts not only myself in the classroom, but also the students. And so I have seen through this additional learning and training and the training I've been able to give to my colleagues, huge shifts in the culture and the climate within the school when students do feel safe when they do feel connected not only to their teacher but to one another and to the overall school campus and what happens is is the teacher becomes the intervention everybody kind of wants something like give me something to fix the problem and and what happens is is the teacher becomes the intervention and every interaction that they have with their students in the classroom is the intervention. That's uh, just observation. That's quite an endorsement. You're saying you have done this and you've implemented it and it's working. Absolutely. I- I've seen it improve uh, student academics. I've seen it improve students' social emotional well-being. I've seen it increase uh, staff retention, uh, overall culture and climate, it, it has impacted everything that we do. This is That's pretty impressive stuff. Is there a, an evaluation component built into your grant here? Yes, we will. Um, so we'll be gathering information. As I said, that's, that's impressive, but yes. it's anecdotal. This right. is one person saying, I think this is doing yes. It's still impressive, but it's not exactly uh, proof. <laughs> yes. So we're working um, with professionals, Mm -hmm. and um, we will have an evaluation process Mm -hmm. um, after every year of the program, and then we can see what the numbers look like. And and, uh, as somebody who's done evaluation research, that's a very tough bar to crack because you're dealing with some very, very basic problems and uh, relatively minor interventions, and and I would call a 12-hour session on anything in the context of somebody's life, a relatively minor intervention, to move the needle on big under underlying life-changing things is a tough haul. That's a very yes, tough thing to do. It, it is. But let's think back. So I don't want to date myself, but um, back when I went to school, teachers were – your other lifeline, right? I can remember very significant interactions and relationships with teachers that stayed after school, teaching me calligraphy, that taught me how to to look at the stock market. A teacher, and this will sound crazy now, but I used to spend the night at her house on the weekends, and we did a lot of things together. Mm -hmm. But teachers had more bandwidth then. They had the ability because... 
life was different. We didn't have as many stressors in terms of economics, in terms of the separation of families, all of these things happening. And teachers had simply more bandwidth. When you learn how to regulate yourself, and it may uh, not be a lot of hours necessarily of training, but you certainly then know how to practice the tools that you have when you go out back out into the world after your training. And it allows you just to have more bandwidth. We'll be back in a moment discussing a final concluding session on adverse childhood experiences and the impact of those on teaching and the teaching profession in the state of Arizona when we return in the think tank in just a moment. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. We're talking here about adverse childhood experiences, various traumas and things, a lot of which are on the ascendancy. Our guests are Jennifer Tunning, uh, Ia Afo, and uh, Laura Wiggins, a teacher in the Apache Junction Schools. Question to you, uh, Ia, um, you're... You're the one with the grant to do this. You've, you've, you're not just dealing with teachers here. You're also dealing with other kinds of youth groups. And tell us about that outreach and how that fits into it. Yes. You know, it's important to think about, first of all, we heal trauma in our day-to-day moments of life is, is really how we heal trauma. We heal trauma through relationships. So when we're talking about adverse childhood experiences, current day toxic stress, um, historical trauma, all of those things get healed through relationship and connection to other human beings. There was a time in our culture where we had four caregivers to one child. We are now at a time where we have... How, how, just, yes, sorry, just four okay. care... Who would be a, counted as a caregiver in that? Um, grandparents, extended okay. family. You know, we had mm-hmm. four people. Sure. Um, and in, in some indigenous cultures still do. And what we find is that their ability to manage adversity increases because of those relationships oh, and connections. It just seems very intuitive. You know, yes. if grandma's there... You know, you've got flex. Something that would be a, yes. a, a, a a real problem for a parent has to find a caregiver. All of a sudden, if grandma's there, life's a lot easier. Right, and right. Stre- and lacking stress. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. So we see, you know, a more positive outcome in mm-hmm. that way. So since we no longer have that and we actually have four children to every one caregiver at this point, we have to look at where else can we have a relationship-rich environment for our children. Mm -hmm. So we're also training community orgs um, that are working with children in the same way that we want to train our educators. We want to work with the adults to understand trauma, to understand adverse childhood experiences, to understand how to self-regulate and understand how to create a safe environment, and most importantly, how to develop a meaningful connection with a child that may come in with behavior that is activating for you. So I'm thinking this would be like Boys and Girls Club, Boys and Girl Scouts, athletic groups. Absolutely. Uh, church groups, maybe. Church group, yeah. Any of those, any organization, any community organization that's working with children, um, it, we will also train them as well. Um, and 
the other part of our program is although relationships are at the top of the list in healing trauma, sometimes, of course, we know you might need additional services. And so we've partnered with Candelin that's going to offer um, in, more intensive services um, as as people need. And who is that and what do they do? <laughs> so uh, Candelin is a community organization and, you know, our mission is really to help find and illuminate the light that are within all of the children in our community. So we provide some services like Kith and Kin, which allows us to serve all of those different community caregivers. But a lot of our work recently has been in behavioral health. So doing the actual treatment of these traumas that we're discussing. So part of our role is during these trainings, we know that it can be incredibly triggering for the educators or youth leaders who are in the space. And we want to make sure that we have that immediate intervention so that those folks can regulate and have that individual support while they're trying to obtain all this new information. Like Just like children can't learn while they're dysregulated, if our teachers in the training are dysregulated, they're not going to be able to wholly absorb the information. So we're providing that on-site support during these trainings. We also might find that there are some individuals who come up to us and say that they have ACEs themselves, that they have dealt with either trauma in childhood or they're bringing in that intergenerational or historical trauma and want to take the next steps to start to heal that. And eight of the 10 recommendations that come out of the ACE study for how to heal these adverse childhood experiences happen in a behavioral health program. So at Candelin, we have a behavioral health program that does individual therapy that is specifically designed to heal trauma. We do family therapy to increase those caregiving relationships. And we do a lot of parent education, a lot of teaching parents ways that they can regulate themselves, you know, in a more advanced or maybe they need more practice or maybe it's better for them to have in a small group format where they see people in their same culture or in their same language and are able to relate in a way that's more in depth and learn to regulate their trauma. Uh, we also teach a lot about parenting methods, you know, just like that classroom management piece when I can regulate myself as a teacher and help regulate my students. What does that look like for a parent? You know, how can I regulate myself as a parent? What does it look like for me to regulate my household? Are you involved in uh, either of you in, in in dealing directly with training? The kind of training you're doing seems to be useful for parents as well. Is that? We are. We are not um, at this time offering um, specifically for parent for mm -hmm. parenting. Not mm -hmm. at this time, but we're hoping to extend the grant mm -hmm. and allow for more programs. We are also doing a youth program where we're going to work with youth and train youth to understand toxic stress. Um, adverse childhood experiences and how that might be impacting their behavior. And it's a really important piece, I think, in terms of even if we look at self-esteem, right? Imagine the child that has this behavior and often want to be in control of the behavior, want to change the behavior and continuously aren't quite able to change that behavior. So helping them to understand the neurological pieces um, and what it means to mm. to have encountered adversity is is what we're going to be doing with the youth program. Well, I want to I want to thank you all for your participation here, Jennifer Tunning, Ia Afo, and Laura Wiggins. It's been very illuminating. If you want to uh, 
reach me, by the way. The website is mikeoneal.org. And uh, this show is not only run twice on the weekend, it's also available by uh, podcast. And the best way I just discovered to do that, while you can link to the show on the website, the best way to get that is actually to subscribe using any of the various podcast players. You simply type in KTAR and you'll see this show along with three or four others from this station all available to you there. And uh, real quick, if somebody, you got, I got five seconds each, you want to tell us how people could get a hold of you and your organization? Yes. Um, you, you can go on our website at um, azaces.org, azaces.org. Or Candelen, C-A-N-D-E-L-E-N dot O-R-G. Thank you all. We'll return on another topic in the Think Tank next week.